Audi. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Now, in the late 90s, there were two travel books that inspired and really have continued to inspire a generation of travellers. Alex Garland's The Beach and William Sutcliffe's Are You Experienced, which I still reference regularly now. And I know from our conversations on social media, I've been chatting about this a lot on Facebook, that many of you really loved that book too. So it dawned on me that since this book crops up so much in my conversations with guests, I should actually get the author on the podcast. I don't know why it took me so long. He's still a very prolific author. In fact, his new book, The Gifted, The Talented and Me is out just this week. So I'm really delighted to have persuaded him to come on the podcast and chat. Let's give William Sutcliffe the full big travel podcast treatment. Over 20 years since it was published, William Sutcliffe's hilariously cynical take on people who go travelling is still inspiring travellers all over the world. He instantly regretted a solo trip to Pakistan to get the train to Beijing, was horrified by the realities of life on the West Bank, ate nothing but marmalade sandwiches for days when travelling to the remote salt flats in Bolivia, and yes, a lot of the stories in Are You Experienced are autobiographical, and yes, I do dare to ask him about that pretty graphic description of being unwell, shall we say, in India. William Sutcliffe is on the Big Travel Podcast. I don't know whether to start with your new book, which is out today, which I have been reading and I've got right here, or my favourite book of yours, which is related directly to travel. I mean, obviously, the new book is just as good. Should we start with the new book, actually? Tell me quickly about that. Well, it all started, actually, with a conversation I had with a bookseller, my son, who was in his early teens at the time. He was ill in bed. And I thought, okay, we've got a local shop where they know all the kids and I'll go and find something light and funny for him to read and you go to, it's funny you go and you're looking for a funny book for a teenager and you ask for the books and she said has he read adrian mole yes has he read hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy yes and she said for a teenage boy that's it and I thought, that's amazing those books are really old and you look at the ya section books for young people and they're it's so dark they're and the actually, books that we were reading as kids yeah exactly and the, yeah exactly and those books are so funny and they meant such a lot to me when i was a kid and that was before why it was invented they weren't really seen as books for teenagers but all my friends read them and all our mums read them they're kind of books about teenage life and they just crossed all boundaries and i thought why is nobody doing that and i started writing funny books you know we'll go on to talk about our experience and i hadn't really tried to write anything funny for a long time and i just thought living with teenagers is so funny and they're such funny people and they have this reputation for being dark and yeah they're really up and down but for every down there's an up so it's a kind of funny it's a funny novel it's called the gifted the talented me and it's a funny book about a teenager from a kind of very ordinary from stevenage and suddenly his dad makes money and they move to Hampstead and they get put into the uh, fictional north london academy for the gifted and talented and the hero of the book is not gifted or talented and doesn't want to be he just wants to be ordinary and he's in a school surrounded by kids who think they're amazing there's a kind of increasing but i don't know if it's social media or talent shows or tv there's this belief that we all have to be special everybody wants to be on stage nobody wants to be in the audience somehow these days Everybody, and also with young people and social media, suddenly they're kind of performing. Everything is performed. They want to get likes and follows for things they do. It doesn't seem quite right to me. So it's a funny book, but underneath it all, it's a slight satire on that change in our, in our culture. So it's funny, if we're talking about two books, this book compared to I Experience, which I wrote in 1996 when I was in my 20s myself. And in that book, the character goes to India and he sends postcards home to yeah. his parents. That's the only way to communicate. So it's in my lifetime. It's not that much time historically, but it is another universe. Oh, things have changed just so dramatically even in the last 10 years, haven't they? Yeah, and the level of connectivity, it's brilliant in some ways, but 
in some ways I think it's detrimental relating to you know there's a lot of talk about mental health of teenagers and it can be a bit pious but I think there's something in that that constant communication late into the evening everybody has to know what everybody else is doing these group chats it's just very stressful and it's very hard for them to switch off it is very and stressful even, even for grown-ups isn't it yeah yeah and even when you travel they don't switch off they're always connected and that's what's interesting now you know looking back at our experience got kids going to india written a long time ago i think one of the best things about traveling when you're young used to be that you were gone and you could leave your life behind and to a certain extent you could leave yourself behind and that was sort of part of the point about travel when you're a young person and because you you change you change so fast when you're young but you're you always often feel you're slightly held back by who you used to be last year your friends your family everybody around you knows who you are and you feel like you want to change you want to what if I want to become somebody else, be somebody else? And that's natural and healthy. That's why those breaks when you go off to university or something are amazing. You can reinvent yourself if you want to. But travel used to be another opportunity to do that. I guess it's curious with your online self because you can reinvent yourself publicly every day if you like. But that's not reinventing yourself who you are. And if you do go travelling you know, to India like we were talking about, like we'll be, we will be talking about in Are You Experienced, you can reinvent yourself physically. You know, there's nobody else that knows you. You don't have that online presence. You might not speak to your parents for like a week or two weeks. And that's all gone. Yeah, and you make friends so fast when you're travelling. You move from place to place. And the book's sort of a satire on that in the way young people, when they're travelling, they cling together. And Lonely Planet is as much a guide to India or wherever you happen to be as a guide to where to find the other Westerners in India. How to find people like you on the other side of the world yeah and it says go to such and such hotel and you make when you're young you make a beeline for that hotel not really because you think it's the best hotel but it's because that's where you know everybody else who's got the lonely planet will be yeah and definitely you up, and you can you know i satirize that in the book but that's not to say i didn't do that when i was 19 20 and it's great you arrive in bangalore or wherever it is and Maybe you're on your own, maybe you're in one other person, but if you find a, a gang of like-minded people, it's kind of exciting. And in terms of the reinventing yourself, especially if you're traveling on your own, you really can, you meet new people and they don't know anything about you and you can, you can try on new selves. And that's, I think, something you should do when you're young. I think that's one, that's the, one of the fantastic things about travel for young people. And I'm worried, I worry that that element of it is lost. It's definitely when changed. Your parents, your parents and your family, you know, if they haven't, don't get a text message from you every 24 hours, you worry. I literally, when I was travelling in the 90s, you'd send a postcard home and you'd literally get a letter back by post-restant. I don't yes. know if you ever did yeah. that. Yeah, no, I that? never used post-restant, so but I've heard people pe talk about it on yeah. the podcast. Well, any young person listening to this probably has no idea what that means, but it used to be you'd send a postcard home because international phone calls are really expensive then. You know, a night in a hotel would cost you 10 seconds of phoning home or something it would rack up so you wouldn't do it and you wouldn't really be expected to do it when you're traveling on a budget so you'd maybe give your parents a rough itinerary before you left but that would be fluid you might not tell them you send them a postcard home and you'd literally say i'm going to be and the postcard would take 10 days to get home or something you say okay in in two or three weeks time i'm going to be in Kathmandu. so they would send a letter to william sutcliffe post restaurant Kathmandu, and you arrive in Kathmandu. you go to the central post office and you say can I have a post restaurant for the letter S, Sutcliffe? And they give you this massive, like, S, you know, is a lot. They give you a massive box and you look through all of these letters from all over the world and if you're lucky, there'd be one for your parents. And I still have that feeling you step out on the street and there would be a letter from home. Such a buzz, home. wasn't it? It was it such was a exciting. buzz getting a written card or... Yeah. Well, actually, on the subject of that, I've been talking about this on my Facebook page because when I picked up your book, knowing I was going to interview you, and the reason I wanted to interview you is because I actually still reference this book at least once every few episodes on my podcast. You know, I last read it, I've probably read it a couple of times then, you know, I've probably read it more than once, but I last read it in the year 2000 maybe and I'm still referencing it now because it, it just so captured the essence of travellers at the time and maybe they're still like that now and I, I was one of the people that couldn't afford to go travelling and never managed to save up I managed to get to Amsterdam and spend 10 months there and like mm. come back with my tail between my legs definitely a lot uh, poorer 
a lot tireder. <laughs> Amsterdam has that effect on you. But I picked up this book and it's got a dedication in it from one of my best friends who's still one of my best oh, friends really? now. And she bought it for me on my 25th birthday in 1999. And actually this was in the middle of my Amsterdam experience. I'd come back to Brighton for the summer and uh, for a couple of weeks and it was actually not a great time in my life. But when, you, uh, when you're that age and younger, you know, obviously you were in your 20s when you wrote this, you can really, you have all these hopes and dreams, don't you? And part of that is doing this whole travel experience around the world. And, you know, if you can't do it, you're pretty pissed off. And I, you know, have done it since, but not in that way. But you really captured the travellers experience, you know, the wankers, the public mm. school boys, the rich kids, the people that are like pretending to be hippies when they've got a trust funds, the people who have really have saved up to go on their own. Every, you really captured all these people. And I'm guessing it's because you did the whole thing yourself. Yeah, I think the starting point for it, for it was I went on my year, year off, like a little bit, I had a year off before university and I worked for six months I had it's actually still the best job I've had in my life I worked in the jazz section of the HMV shop on That's Oxford Street good. selling records I just lucked out I went for a job and they put me in that section and with a colleague who was a fantastic guy and I racked up some money and then I had a I had the summer and I'd earned a decent amount of money and I didn't really know where to go and then a little bit like in the book quite different there was somebody who I knew was going and and I was sort of dragged along by somebody else's passion for India to go, even though I didn't know a huge amount about it. I liked the idea of the adventure. And also it was a girl who I fancied, a little bit like in the book. It's well, a bit autobiographical. Well, kind of, I mean, the story's also but the characters aren't, actually, in the sense that um, I went and I had an absolute fantastic time, loved it, did fall out with the person I was travelling with. That didn't go right, a bit like in the book, but again, very different. I absolutely loved it. And then went back and then actually when I was at university I managed to save up some more money and get a travel grant to go to Pakistan afterwards because I was so I thought this is great I want to go more hardcore and do something similar and had a I mean we can talk about that later it was an astonishing trip and I absolutely loved Pakistan this was before it was perceived as dangerous and I went right up to the Afghanistan border and to some of the places now that are pretty dangerous for Western anyway I loved Pakistan and then I just actually, unlike the character in the book who hates it, I really loved it. But as I, when I went back and I was old and I went to India a few years later in my sort of early mid twenties and saw the younger people about 19 and they were only sort of three or four years younger than me, but I could sort of see in them, I saw, I'd looked at them and I saw how they were behaving and I thought, oh my God, that is probably what I was like. So it's a massive the, difference at yeah. that age, isn't it? It really is a massive difference. Yeah, and like them, I don't think I had much self-awareness when I was 19. But then just a few years older, I could look back and this kind of horror version what I might have been at my most pretentious and ridiculous, <laughs> I suddenly saw the joke in that and the humour in that and I thought that could be a really funny book. So it's like that. So the, it's, so the character in the book is a sort of self-flagellating version of my worst imagination of what I might have been. And it's also split. Also, I realised that in terms of the satire on travellers in India, there are kind of two responses to India which are equally ridiculous. One is, you love everything. You think Indians are spiritual people. You start wearing, you know, Hindu or Buddhist clothes. And the other is, I hate everything. It's terrifying. Everything's so dirty. What am I doing here? And so, yeah, there are elements of me in there, but in a way, the two characters in the book, the guy and the girl, and it, they arrive in India and they're kind of into each other and they have the, the, those two polar opposite responses. You know, I was somewhere in the middle. I had a bit of both. Yeah, but I had the, a bit you know, of both. He hates everything. She loves everything. And they're both equally misguided. And this causes them to completely fall out. And what was interesting about the reaction to the book is I sort of thought it was a pretty niche, really. Not that many people do it. Um, and it's definitely been a hit for the people that do it. It's become a sort of alternative guidebook. And, you know, the, one of the things I'm proudest of in all the 20 years I've been writing is that in The Lonely Planet, at the back, even though the book massively takes the piss out of Lonely Planet, the recent editions of The Lonely Planet have a list of 
the novels you have to read when you go to India. And there's only about five or six novels, I think. And one is Midnight's Children, one is I Experienced. I'm so delighted about that. That's yeah, fantastic. I mean, it's, I interviewed Monisha mm. Rajesh, who's written um, Around India in 80 Trains and Around the World in 80 Trains. She was like, that is my favourite book about India. Oh, really? Because it does, it sums up the two polar opposites. I mean, I love India and I hate it as well. It's yeah. horrible, it's hard work, it's dirty. You know, you're washing your top in the sink and it's going browner and browner you know and there's there are some yeah. really tough times you yeah. know when you're traveling in india yeah. and i'm someone who's lucky enough to have been to india several times but on luxury mm. press trips you know where everything is done for you and you still get the bad stomach mm. you know you still and you've got a great like scene in are oh, you experienced where you shit yourself in a hostel basically graphic. i don't even know if i want to ask i don't think i've ever asked a guest before have you ever <laughs> shat yourself in a hostel but did you really shit yourself in a hostel uh it's a long time ago the chapter in the book is fiction i'm at pains to add i you know i had various grumbles uh, i didn't have it as bad as him but you hear stories and i thought i'd I turned it up to 11 with that chapter that's the that's the you know it's an experience that everybody either has or hears about and I thought I'd go try, try and go for the ultimate ultimate version the people that go to India get it and what really took me by surprise is actually because he hates it so much kind of it seems to strike a chord with people who have no intention of going to India are terrified of going to India and they can have it all confirmed by the book you know some people are they don't, just, they just don't really want to or do third anyway. world travel yeah or they just, some people just think I like travel but I want to go to Spain I don't really yeah. want to do third world travel if that's how you feel fine and I think I, most I people in some ways too. they feel comforted by the book because they read the book and think yeah. okay I don't have to do that okay, I've read about it now it's not, it's not for me <laughs> Uh, so where should we let's move on a little bit because I could talk about the book forever and you know having flicking through it last night there's so many laugh out loud moments there on every paragraph which is a real skill you know as a writer um, and it's a, a real a, a testament that it's still you know being talked about so much now so you went to Pakistan mm. shortly after India was it yeah that was that was uh, that was a real life changing trip the, the the thing I did after after India because I did it on my own I suppose the long story about this is that I um, so I had that trip in my ear off then I went to university and again I got a job over because the HMV was still hiring I got a job over Christmas and then I heard that at the university there was a travel grant if you could you know these weird people leave a legacy for some weird fund and I just heard if really? you write an app no and I nobody, thought they left it to like Battersea was, Dogs Home well, they or something do, they, were, they were weird there were these strange things that sort of, and, if, and there was a, a a grant if you could write a proposal for a trip that was of well, that you would write up of historical importance and I wrote some proposal about the Silk Road and la 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 I just wanted to do the trip um, and my elder brother had been there and told me about it this Karakoram you heard the Karakoram I don't know the Karakoram Highway no I haven't I know the Silk Road but not the and the Karakoram Highway is this modern road which is fascinating so and it's all there because of geopolitical reasons and the the old sort of diplomatic thing about how your enemy's enemy is your friend you know china have a has a long-going border dispute with india high up in the himalayas it never really gets talked about it's even north of kind of Kashmir. if you look on a map the, that india china border is usually done as a dotted line it's a ceasefire line and they they don't actually fight over it but they are in dispute over that border india pakistan as everybody knows mm historic enemies so for that reason China and Pakistan are allies the Pakistan China border is in the Karakorams which is very high remote the westernmost extension of the Himalayas is the Karakoram range and it's geologically very new very high very spiky and there's almost nothing there very little there very underpopulated but for military reasons they've built this and China and Pakistan have built this incredible road it's high quality road they call the Karakoram Highway and there's even a guidebook to the Karakoram Highway and so as a traveller this is an amazing opportunity to get there's quite so there's quite easy access to this incredibly remote place and I had to write in order to get this grant I had to write it had to be quite an ambitious trip and also I felt like I slightly wanted to kind of toughen myself up I was brought up not in luxury but in a kind of North London semi-detached house in a way it's quite all well, my dad's a sort of middle manager it's quite ordinary but it's not tough and I had a sense that I want to be a writer and I need to sort of toughen myself up I need to do something a bit challenging having been to India I felt that's a real challenge doing that and so 
I managed to write this grant and I got a, the grant plus the money I earned from working in a shop. I had enough money over that first summer holiday of college to do this trip where I bought a one-way ticket to Karachi and a return ticket for two months later from Beijing by train on my own, which seems crazy now. If my son, my, my kids says they want to do that when they're 19, I'll, I don't know what I'll think. Yeah, that's it. When you become reason, a parent, you see it differently. Yeah, you? I just wanted to do it. And this was before Russia had invaded. So this was 92. Russia had already invaded Afghanistan. So Afghanistan was a no-no. And now the Mujahideen existed. But it was before in the West, it was perceived as a hotspot. And, and I remember landing in Karachi, age 19, on my own with this ticket. You know, this is this long time ago, so it was a paper ticket. If I lost that bit of paper, I don't know, I would have got home. I had in my money belt my this train ticket saying Beijing to Moscow, August to something, end of August. And that night, I've probably never been more scared in my <laughs> life, actually. I was sort of, I was up for it and I was feeling brave until I got there. And I remember landing in Karachi and it's quite a huge and quite scary city, boiling hot. And I still remember vividly that first night in a hotel in Karachi and I just picked a hotel there were no other westerners in this hotel I was on my own I was far away the only way back was to get to Beijing I don't know 3,000 miles away or something I was absolutely terrified I thought what have I done and so I got out of Karachi quite fast and got on the train north and slowly quite quickly actually quite quickly I fell in love with Pakistan once I was in the north and I was up in the mountains and I still remember arriving in Peshawar, which is now a very dangerous place for travellers. You hear of kidnaps there, and the because there are the that that northernmost part of Pakistan, which is still called the sort of tribal areas, has never quite been reined into the democracy. Mm. There, sort of the the Pashtuns, they're pretty wild people, and it's where the British Empire had to stop there. Nobody has ever been able to tame them, and there's guns, and it's it's a cr absolutely crazy place and you see the houses they're like this kind of military compounds you know the british could conquer anywhere yeah. <laughs> but not there mm. they just couldn't couldn't pin them down and once i got up there i was absolutely fine and it was weirdly enough the most hospitable place i've ever been to you, i remember going to market in peshawar and it's a bit like going to market in india when everyone says come in come in come in take tea take tea but there they come say come in come in take tea and you go and you have a cup of tea and then they don't try and sell you a rug. They say, okay, bye. Oh, and that's I, a relief, yeah. actually. And there was that, that. So just people wanted to chat. And I still remember once sitting down in a restaurant having a meal. And then when I tried to pay the bill, somebody just said, no, that guy over there, he's paid your bill. And this guy just kind of waved at me. And that was that. It was just this incre incredible hostility. Nobody tried host hostility. to perforate your eardrum. I remember being in a market, I think it was Bangalore, actually, uh, where somebody came at me with like a thing that they wanted to stick in my ear and I had to sort of start, stop them from sticking this dagger in my ear. It was like, clean your ears. It was like, my ears are fine. Oh, the ear cleaning. Yeah. And then you read about it in the Lonely yeah. Planet afterwards. It's like, don't, they'll yeah. perforate your eardrums. So, oh, yeah. Thank God I avoided that And it will give you hepatitis or something. Yes, yeah. yeah. I don't yeah. know which is worse. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's a fa that was a fascinating place and an, um, and a, an astonishing trip. So how did the train trip go? Or did you stop uh, off? Did yeah, you, well, it was... That was part so, of the So, yeah, it was bit by bit. So I went slowly, slowly up through Pakistan and went up in the mountain, went right up to the Khyber Pass, which was quite amazing. Amazing. There's a le legendary place right on the border, which has been well-known since Victorian times as a gun-making place. I remember making a German guy who was very keen to go there. And I thought, OK. And so he went... To, again, it's just... It is like the Wild West. Went to this village, and it really was like the Wild West, just a dusty street and these wooden shacks. Except in this one town, for no reason, every shop was selling guns. <laughs> and this guy who I was with, I realised he was really into guns. Oh, and I thought, that's why he was there. And I just... And then this guy... And then I remember these guys came to the shop and gave us a card and said come with us adventure trip come in the mountains and fire off a Kalashnikov with the Mujahideen and I thought actually <laughs> voluntarily going into the mountains with the Mujahideen who've told you they've got an assault rifle with them probably not so I didn't go for that I met people who did actually but I didn't I'm go sure. for that I'm sure in um, um, Phnom Penh I was offered to fire a Kalashnikov just after visiting, visiting the killing fields and no, like, really. no I, I just, i've just been no like, yeah. loads of tourists a lot of travelers they might call themselves like yeah great i'll go and no i'm not yeah. doing that it's strange it's strange isn't it but what was interesting about that there aren't that many places that are 
that you can go even even in my lifetime, which are completely untouristed. But that was that was astonishing, and the landscape up up there is absolutely beautiful. And going right up, and the closer you get to the Chinese border, the more wild it gets. And then you go over the border, and the first thing over the border on the other side is one of the most amazing places I've ever been. A place called Kashgar. So as a travel podcast, this is a niche place, but if anyone wants to do some really extraordinary travel, Kashgar is absolutely amazing. So you've got the Taklamakan Desert, which is the western extension of the Gobi Desert, and it's absolutely enormous. The last town in the far southwest of China is Kashgar, and it's the 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 Uyghur the Uyghurs they're called U I Y G U R, who are the Muslims of western China. It's this huge huge area of China which was traditionally Muslim and t- culturally totally different from Han China and they're actually terribly oppressed by the Chinese particularly now it's getting worse and worse and people you know there's a lot of awareness about Tibet very little about mm. that even more so now actually so back then it was probably not quite as bad as it is now but this Kashgar market because it's a desert and then you've got Afghanistan, it's right near the border with Afghanistan and Pakistan. So it's just right at the edge. You know there's kind of that amazing buzz you get from frontier towns. This is the edge the edge of China, but it's more the it's a more sort of edge place than anywhere you could ever go. Because it's so far from everywhere, apart from these other borders which aren't particularly porous anyway. So it covers and they have this Sunday market which effectively covers an area the size of Western Europe. It's the market <laughs> for this vast land area. And throughout the desert, there are these... It's not like the um, Sahara. It's not empty. There are villages all over. So the Sijo people just come. And you could be... At, you feel like you could be at any point in the, in the last 200 years. It's a cattle market, a horse market, extraordinary food for sale. And I still remember the look for all Uyghur men is for some reason a shaven head and a goatee beard almost all and a particular kind of fur hat I remember seeing rows and rows of guys like that all getting the head shaved these barbers rows and rows of them giving a shaving the heads of these people you know those moments where you just where travel just totally takes you out of everything you've ever seen before you know like if I had to pick one kind of of all the traveling I've done in the 48 years of my life that one day is probably the most amazing walking around Kashgar market absolutely astonishing and then from Kashgar you have to get to reach the first railway in China you have to get one bus journey to the next town which literally takes three days from Kashgar to Urumqi three days up through and then once you get in Urumqi you're on the Chinese rail network and you're kind of connected to the rest of the world so that's that you know that's how remote Kashgar is it's three days in a bus to the nearest rail- railway station. And then actually in China, I had a rough time in China. Having loved Pakistan, the trip through China, I found it very tough. And I was alone. And you know, when you're that age, it's brilliant to travel on your own. But it was pretty young for that trip. Yeah. And uh, the the highs were high, but the lows were the lows were pretty low, actually. What was, um, the, uh, what was the funniest thing that happened to you? I'm going in the middle of the highs and the lows. What was the most amusing thing? Uh, I did nothing amusing. I'm trying to think, <laughs> actually. Maybe that weird day with the German gun obsessive in, <laughs> in Pakistan. But I, was, but I remember the weird thing, the really weird awakening. Cross, there was a weird awakening crossing the border from Pakistan into China. But Pakistan was, despite the history, there was, seemed to be an amazing warmth and positivity towards, I'm not sure if it was all foreigners, but towards British people. I did see a kind of Saddam is Superman Death to America t-shirt <laughs> for sale when I was there. I'm um, English, so the, poli- British, yeah, the politics were still there, but there was a, on the personal, whatever the geopolitics might have been happening, yes, because the Gulf War had happened then. The personal warmth was really powerful and welcoming, and you could just make connect. And also, a lot of people speak English, so the connection was great. Kashgar was like another universe. It wasn't like being in China, but the minute I left Kashgar, I was suddenly in China, and you felt it was absolutely flipped the other way. The Chinese people had been taught a lot of hostility towards the West and I felt it had really taken. I felt straight away that I wasn't welcome. And this was in the, this is when communist China was communist. And so there was that amazing, genuinely communist, demotivated atmosphere. So I suppose, again, for younger listeners who never lived through communism, there was a thing that's probably gone now completely. Just 
you'd go into a hotel and the person behind the desk would be a government employee and there was an attitude, I don't know if it was just a sense of hostility to Westerners or this, but this absolutely spiky go away. And sometimes you'd go in and you'd ask for room and they'd just say no. The first word of Chinese you learn is mayo, mm. no. And they just say no. And what you realise you had to do is you had to go up into the hotel and as a traveller there would be these dormitories. You'd go up, you'd claim a bed and then you'd come back down and you'd have to find a way of communicating so that you've taken a bed and then they would very reluctantly accept your money. It's very, um, it's very difficult to find that sort of foreignness these days. I mean, it does exist in some places, but mm. like you said, the whole communism thing, I remember going to places in Eastern Europe that felt very, very foreign and frosty and mm. cold. You know, the people were cold. I'm not saying they all are, but, you know, that, that's how it felt. You know, they were conditioned to hate us. Yeah, yeah, and the level of mistrust, actually, it's weird being mis mistrusted like that and also not necessarily mistrusted or hated as well but just mm. no, a, a different kind of you know we're overly polite aren't we when we travel mm. British people yes. American people yeah. we go out of our way you know there's no way you'd sit behind the reception and just go no mm. yeah yeah <laughs> and I mean, in some ways you can feel a sneaking admiration for that yeah, absolutely a total yeah. absence of any ingratiating <laughs> effort but the amount that China has changed so if, what year was that so if that was 92 or 93 it's interesting, my memory, and then I ended up in Beijing, and at that point, it was dominated by bicycles. I mean, I haven't been back to Beijing, but I've seen pictures now, and it's such a modern city, more modern yeah, cities than most really Western is. cities, and cars and superhighways, and the fact that in that tiny gap of time, I'm mean, literally going down cycling, you cycle towards Tiananmen Square, I still remember, you can't really imagine it, you never experienced it in the West, a, a big, wide boulevard, and everyone would ride the same make of bike that didn't have gears. So all the bikes got roughly the same speed, not fast, not slow. And you'd be in this morass, almost like a picture you see of the London Marathon or something, mm. just a mass of people and they all move at the same speed and the traffic lights go red and everybody stops. And just huge numbers of bicycles. And now totally, totally, I mean, the transformation in that city is just just astonishing. You wrote, uh, you talk about like the, the bad times when traveling and do you think there's something, there's a, another scene in Are You Experienced where the guy's at Dave, it's Dave isn't it? Yeah. Dave is sitting on the beach, I think he's sitting on the beach and it, everything around his life has fallen apart. He's sitting there and he's thinking this is absolutely disastrous and then starts to cry and in that moment he kind of realizes actually this is really good, you know this, this mm. sort of terrible hardship that I've brought upon myself mm. is actually almost life-affirming and makes you look a bit more interesting, you know his, his cheekbones are chiseled where he's lost weight with the terrible shitting himself incident and you know he knows that he looks like a tortured soul and actually feels like you know he's grown a little bit or maybe he hasn't because the he's thinking it, it from a shallow point of view it's like mm. i look like a tortured soul you know i'm quite enjoying this yeah, looking exactly. like a tortured soul is there something about those sort of loads and lows and hardships when you travel that like makes you feel good about yourself exactly yeah i mean exactly i suppose that's maybe that scene came from some of those feelings i had in that longer that longer trip where i really pushed myself to the point of fear and slightly beyond, yeah, I did sort of bit off more than I could chew in a certain way. Yeah, and in a sense, you know, that's sort of a satirical scene in a way, but it's something I think we've all felt. He feels down and then he can, he has a sort of outer body, he can see himself from the outside and he thinks that it looks cool to be down. Yeah. And then suddenly he feels happy that he must be looking cool and then he's up. And it's sort of a satire on just how when you're 18, your emotions Definitely. are just everywhere, up, down, up, down. And even earlier than that, I remember writing a diary, you know, and I was living in Spain at the time and I'd go off on the rocks for hours on my own and sit and write, you know, deep thoughts. And yeah. part of that was I wanted someone to come across me sitting there writing deep thoughts. You know, I wanted to like be that person who is like, you know, here I am, I am on my own, I'm sad, I'm, you've, yeah. you've hurt me, I'm thinking deep thoughts. Yeah. And that sort of thing. I know, that's the funny thing with teenagers. <laughs> yeah, my eldest is, he's 15 now, so he's a bit young for this, but you do get the thing with teenagers. You, it's funny, teenagers coming back into my life now for the first time since I was one. And there's something funny. There's, there, it's a very interesting period of life emotionally, and there is that, there's a kind of an urge an urge to be more complicated than you are Definitely. and sadder than you are and, and you, it's dreadful you if you've had like a great upbringing like you and i have both so it's like we've had no hardship whatsoever it's like what we can what can we create for ourselves yeah. here although, although the interpersonal stuff is so intense so it's funny i think the other reason why that book struck a chord with people who have never done that kind of travel and never want to 
and I didn't realise this when I was writing it, is that the, the really universal experience there is going on holiday with somebody and falling out with them. And if you're in India or Greece or Costa Brava, it's the same thing. And you know, I would say more about that the, uh, the book itself. It's just that universal sort of young person experience. It doesn't even have to be in India. It can be sitting on a rock down the road from, you know, where you live, like I was. It doesn't yeah. have to be um, anywhere. Uh, another book that you, re- you wrote um, was The Wall, and that was based in uh, Israel and Palestine on yes. the over, the, well, about the wall. It was, yeah. about, you know, the, the West Bank. Did you go there and research it, or did you just sort of conjure it up in your No, I did. Side? There was a long and complicated intellectual and emotional journey behind that book, actually. I'm Jewish myself, but not from a Zionist or religious family, particularly. But if you're Jewish, you feel, you feel you have to have an opinion about Israel. And I wasn't brought up to feel either positive or negative towards it particularly. And my family, my father's father is an English Gentile, which is why I'm called Sutcliffe. But my other three grandparents are all uh, Lithuanian Jews. And there was a mass exodus of Lithuania. It's actually the biggest mass movement of Jews prior to the Holocaust in history was the pogroms in the Pale of Settlement, Lithuania, Latvia. Estonia, mainly Lithuania and Latvia, in the dying days of the yeah. of the uh, Tsarist Empire to try and save himself. He tried to blame everything on the Jews, which as, as often in history, it worked. And a lot of Jews fled. Um, and a lot of Lithuanian Jews ended up in South Africa. You know, as you, you, you know, somebody you knew would be there, so you'd send your son. So my family went from Lithuania to South Africa. My mother was brought up in South Africa and then came to... England in the 60s but as a white South African had quite a lot of guilt about her upbringing and I went and I'd visited my grandparents in South Africa when I was little and then in my early 20s thinking I I need to have an opinion about Israel see what I think and also having traveled in Pakistan and spent some time in Muslim countries and found it very interesting I went on a trip with my girlfriend at the time to Israel and also went down into the Sinai Peninsula, which is, you know, was part of Egypt, um, and through Jordan and then back again to get a feel for Israel and the area. And I came away with some very positive feelings towards Israel, which I'd never felt before, and also some very negative impressions, including a, an uneasy sense reminded me of South Africa in some ways, mm, of yeah, these two, two populations, cheek by jowl, one with very, very different set of rights and privileges to another and I stayed when I was in Jerusalem I stayed in East Jerusalem more than West Jerusalem which is the Palestinian side and and I felt uneasy about it but I didn't continue to think deeply about Israel for a long time until I had this idea for a book the war until the, actually when the wall was being built I became interested in it as a as a writer actually I think it's a it seems to me like a very interesting metaphor for lots of what's going on. It seems like a hugely important thing in our times in general is that the world is increasingly getting divided into haves and have-nots. And there's that wall, but there's also the way the EU is a form of wall in a way that we are all behind. Who's on this side of the wall, the privileged side of the wall, the unprivileged side, you know, there's America and walls seem to be coming back yeah. more. Trump's um, and borders and the physical concrete wall there in in the West Bank seemed like a physical embodiment of that. And I began to think, what if I write a story set in a kind of loosely based on the wall there and the and the story of the, the the sort of plot of the book as a kid, teenager from one side of the wall has been brought up in, in effectively a version of an Israeli settlement has been brought up believing that everybody on the side of the wall is evil and bad and they're our enemy and they want to get us so we need the wall to keep us safe which is essentially the narrative the Israeli narrative of the wall um, but this kid in pursuit of a lost football finds a hidden passageway goes through and the people on the other side some people try and get him because they know who he is and where he's from and then a girl hides him saves him for her own reasons and helps him get back and via this connection with the girl, he realises that the picture is much more complicated than he thought. And he realises at the last minute that this girl is in desperate need, she's really hungry, and he feels that, he has to, that she's in real trouble and he has to find a way to help her. And the initial notion I had was quite sort of metaphorical, loosely based on that place. And then the more research I did, the more I read about it, the more I began to have some ethical issues with how, how do you go about loosely basing something on a real place? And then I heard about this 
thing, the Palestine Festival of Literature, where Western writers go to Palestine, to the West Bank, and they travel around with Palestinians and they do events to Palestinian audiences. And because it's so hard to move around there for the local population, because the occupation, the festival uh, moves around. It's sort of like a road show. And you go to, and I wrote them a letter explaining this book, saying I'd love to participate. And it's run by the brilliant Egyptian writer Adaf Swerf. And she invited me on. And I went on that trip and then I saw it all firsthand and I was absolutely kicked in the stomach by it actually. And I realised that what I saw on that trip was so different from what I'd seen on a sort of tourist trip to Israel when I was younger. Mm. And I was abs you know, absolutely horrified by what I saw and I was and I saw the occupation for what it was for the first time in my life. Just the brutality of it, the injustice of it, and the, what the wall has done to people's lives. And also the incredible dignity of the people there. Just a deeply, deeply traumatised people. And how you psychologically carry on with your life in the face of despair. Because they're just losing. And they're continuing to lose. And they are so powerless. And it's not getting better. And I came back and I looked at this manuscript. And I just I can't continue. I don't know what to do with this. And for quite a while I couldn't. I couldn't carry on. I thought, I can't piggyback off other people's misery to to write this book. But slowly I found a way back into it. I thought, OK, I can write this book and it can seem... And I realised I could do a sort of dual... split. It's sort of two books in one. So in some ways it's a young adult book that reads... I realised I could write this, but it reads to young people who know nothing about it. It reads like a dystopia of the kind of book that young adult fiction has lots of dystopias set in a fantastical universe with mm -hmm. rich people and poor people divided by a wall. It feels like one of those young adult dystopias but I did more and more meticulous research and made it and actually it's almost reportage the facts of it and the logistics of the colours of the number plates the how you get a pass to get through the wall the people being denied access to farmland olive groves the farming of the olive groves goes, there's a whole plot pivots on a an olive grove that this family has that needs to be watered, but they can't get there anymore. And I did, and and eventually I found a way around it. I found a way to honour the subject. I think so. It's it's very detailed, and, I, and it's had an excellent response to my huge relief from Palestinian readers and people who lived there. Hopefully, they feel seen by it. it. Obviously, you know they're they're the people that should be telling their own story. But in the outside world, there's so little appetite, interest for it, appetite for hearing that story. And I think I found out, you know, it's not had an enormous readership, but the people who have read it, it, it communicates some of what it's, what it's really like. It's and funny, I, I see a lot of people speaking out about Israel from both sides. Maybe it's just the, the social media I, I inhabit, you know, and the people, the journalists and writers are around me, at least the people I, uh, they're around me, you know, in the virtual universe um, online. And it's a controversial thing writing mm. about Israel because so many people are so so pro-Israel and yeah. I don't understand how they can be that pro-Israel Israel when such dreadful things are happening in Palestine I had friends mm. I haven't been to I've been to Israel I haven't been to uh, to Palestine but I've had friends that have lived there and you know living like you have and traveled there and living amongst these people that are just so oppressed it just seems bizarre that you can be in any way against that when you think about the people on the ground who are living with that on a day-to-day -day basis and it seemingly doesn't seem to be getting any better. Yes and when you see it I mean there's something about I found there's a huge difference in reading about it and seeing it the word military occupation trips off the tongue but when you actually see it when you actually go through a checkpoint and you see you know a middle-aged Palestinian doctor up against a 19 year old Israeli with a gun and if the guy with the gun says, no, yeah, you've got a pass, but actually no, go back that way, and you go back that way. Just the power, the power of the gun and of the military, and not the stuff that's on the news. I mean, that's the thing I really learned then. What you see, in, and I think this is where you can have the role of fiction can depict this in an interesting, different way to, the, to current affairs. A gun is news when it's fired, and the bullet goes somewhere and hits something, that's news. But what isn't news is the power of the unfired gun. And that's what I saw there, really, the enormous power. When you have people with guns and another group of people who don't have guns, the people without guns have to do. That's what's happening on a daily basis. 
there, be living under military occupation, and you may, you know, it's been occupied since 1967. So people, you know, in their 60s who've lived their whole life under military occupation, they do not have those rights. But travel-wise, the other interesting thing I realised as I was writing, but having had that visceral experience, because the book is written from the point of view of a kid who lives in a settlement, I realised also, I mean, the other thing, writing a novel about it, as you were saying, the defence of Israel is so visceral from the people who want to defend Israel. As I was writing this book, I realised that unlike any other novel I'm ever going to write, the book has to be armour-plated against attack. There are going to be people, it's not just, I don't like your novel, there are going to be people who want to undermine it, attack it, if they see the book as attacking Israel, which on some level it is. It's criticising the occupation, which as I see is legitimate, but you have to be, you have to armour-plate it against that. And I realised that I really do need to see both sides of this properly to write it accurately and fairly. And having been on this trip through Palestine and seen the settlements from the outside, which can appear very fortified, forbidding, terrified, always on the hilltops, because that's, that's the land they've taken. Because historically, obviously, in a dry place, you don't settle in the hilltops because the water is down below. But uh, for military reasons now, so all these settlements, they can drill big boreholes, they can get water in. They, they've occupied the hilltops, often on the grounds that they were unoccupied. Nobody wanted them anyway, which is historically a lot. It's just very inaccurate and a spurious justification. And I thought, I always thought it was impossible to how do you visit a settlement, it's kind of impossible as an outside, but I did actually find a way. There's one very left-wing Israeli tour company called Green Olive Tours, and I hugely recommend it to anyone who's visiting Israel on any kind of random tourist trip. You look on the Green Olive Tours website and they do day tours of the West Bank. So you can be staying in Israel, you can be on a nice family holiday to Tel Aviv, you can still Look on the Green Olive Tours. Give yourself at least one day where you see what's really going on one other side. And Green Olive Tours are the people to go to. So that they do, they even do day tours of the old city of Jerusalem, where they will point out to you what a normal Israeli tour guide will not point out to you. Mm. They will say, "This here didn't used to be here. This is what was bulldozed to make this." And you, and it's a revelation. You see, well, th- and you see that house there. Those people are settlers, and they chuck their rubbish into that courtyard there and all sorts of stuff like that um, I will do that if I manage to get there again I will do that but I went there for a party on a boat so that right, I managed yeah. to and went down the Sinai Peninsula and I thought it was a great place I really loved yeah. it and the food is incredible and uh, it was very awkward crossing borders especially because I'd mm. taken the boat from Israel down to Egypt and then came back over land so that was very difficult to explain and that there's a lot of heavy heavy security yeah, yeah, and yeah. they took our passports away for quite a long time and it felt quite nerve wracking mm. you know other than that obviously just saw no trouble whatsoever which you yeah. don't you know in those places. I know you have to and it's very and that's the interesting thing about the wall but is that it's it's very Alice in Wonderland it's you go on the Palestinian side as I did and it is everywhere you can't escape it and then I went on the second trip to try and see the wall from the other side you can't find it it's an amazing piece of architecture it's hidden it's deliberate in your face on one side and on the other side it's disguised by trees it's hidden back from the road there are, there are land banks pushed up it so when you can see it it's eight meters high on one side eight meters twice as high as the berlin wall or more than twice as high as the berlin wall. eight meters it's enormous and it looks half the size from the other side because they push these land bucks at it they put stone things on it to decorate it and what green olive tours set up for me is a private trip to into settlements which they do occasionally it's usually just journalists and diplomats that want to see it and via green olive tours i managed to get this tour where i stayed in some settlements and that was absolutely bizarre one of the families was a family from new jersey who'd moved there for ideological reasons and in a way they're very like families i know from golders green they were nice people they were warm they were friendly but they were settlers they were they believed they were doing god's work and moving to this place and i remember us and they had kids i remember saying to him why how do you feel about um bringing up your kids so close to the wall and he said, oh, we, we have walls like that next to the freeways in New Jersey. We call them <laughs> sound barriers. So they were amazingly deluded about what was going on. They really didn't, they didn't get it. But what's interesting in these things, again, as a writer of fiction, is ideologically, just, I despise what they're doing, but they're not evil. I mean, that's the thing. They, they were nice people. That's the interesting thing. As human beings, most of the human beings you come across are personable even though, in my opinion, they were doing something really appalling. And obviously there's a spectrum of settlements. There are some 
real, rabid, terrifying, crazy ones who I avoided. So the ones I met were more at the milder end, but they're still, you know, they're occupying this land against international law. It just um, goes to show that I think you cannot have a valid pro-Israel stance if you haven't been there. And I don't mean where I've been to Tel Aviv and uh, Elat and all these wonderful places to actually, you know, behind the wall, next to the wall, on the mm. other side of the wall and seeing how people are living with the reality of it. I think few people get it. They don't they don't really understand it. And I mean, and I understand because I'm Jewish myself, I absolutely understand the history of it. I think I'm in an unusual position, actually, in that I can, I can understand both sides. And I think that puts me in an interesting position as a novelist. But having seen both sides, and I think really tried really hard to understand both sides, I have ended up with a very clear sense of what's right and wrong here. And the occupation is just wrong. And the way Israel keeps on lurching further and further to the right and the two-state solution, even if it's just totally receding Oslo, is a joke. It was the one you really understand. It was kind of a con in a sense. It's so tragic when you're in Palestine. The injustice is so in your face. And, and it's, it's, heart, it's heartbreaking, actually. Now, I, I'd love to talk about it. I can talk about it for ages, but we've got, we're going to run out of time. So what other big travel hits in your life have I not mentioned. Alongside kind of Kashgar Market, the other extraordinary, one of the most extraordinary things that I've ever seen, which is also really unheard of, is the have you ever heard of the Salar de Arumchi in Bolivia? Mm, oh, it's the, the salt the plains. Salt oh flies. my God, I'd love to go there. Yeah, Absolutely love to go there. It's really astonishing. They look incredible. Yeah, and for some reason, I mean, because it's so hard to get to, it's not spoken about much. It's, it's very little known. Um, it looks like the moon, doesn't it? Yeah. In, well, it, it does in photos. I, I believe it's the... I'm sceptical anyway it says such and such is the size of Wales. <laughs> Everything's the size yeah, of Wales. Or 10 football pitches. <laughs> I don't know how many football pitches get into Wales or indeed the yeah. salt plains in Olivia. Olivia. Exactly. It's a Olivia. universal measurement of size for something big but not that big. Mm. <laughs> so it's that size. But it's just white and flat. It's like a piece of paper. And you cannot believe your eyes when you go there. So you go right up to the north of Chile, through the Atacama Desert. And then again, I think you have to drive for two or three days in a car. You can get, when you get to the last town in Atacama, and you pay for a sort of a jeep ride, a three-day jeep trip to the Saladini, and then it pops you out in Bolivia on the other side. So it's right, I think, Atacama. It's one of these places where it hasn't rained for 200 years or something. And then you go up from there into the Altiplano, the high plains of Bolivia. So it's really high, really remote and totally uninhabited. So you, again, you drive for several days through the desert and you have to stay in these terrible lodges. And I remember the only thing to eat was bread and marmalade for some reason. <laughs> It was, in some ways, it was the worst. It was really. You see where grim. Paddington gets it now from Peru. You know, it's uh, That's in, in the vicinity, the South American vicinity. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. But then eventually, you get up there, and it's absolutely worth it. It's like a sheet of paper. It's just white, 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 as far as you can see. And it's almost like it's sort of you feel like you're in a U2 album cover or something. You cannot, you cannot believe your eyes, just white as far as the horizon, and then. Having experienced that, you dr and it takes at least a day to drive across or something, but there was one point in the day when you get to a place where when it rains there, which unlike the Atacama, for some reason it does occasionally rain there, so there is a bit of a lake. The whole thing is actually a dried up inland sea. That's why there's all the salt there. When it rains, the water sits there for a short period of time, but because, I don't know why, because the water, you have water on top of white salt, it forms a mirror but not in a way that a lake is like a mirror. It's genuinely like a bathroom mirror. And you look out at it and imagine, and you're on a mirror that seems to stretch to the horizon. And you just can't, and it goes, and it's a, like a bathroom mirror to the horizon, and then some mount, just in the distance on the horizon, some mountains, which you see twice, because they're reflected double, and then clouds up, and then a few clouds down. It's such a cliche, you can't believe your eyes, but you genuinely can't believe your eyes. And you worth get that, the three-day check like, and the marmalade yeah, sandwiches. it was then. genuinely worth it. It's one of those things that's absolutely seared in my mind. And I think the water was only a couple of inches thick. So we got, there was a road that went out onto a spit to the end of it. And we all got out and we took photographs of this and then we got back in the car and then the driver just drove through it. <laughs> across this thing through the water. People like, we're going to sink. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe it when he set off into it because I didn't know how deep it was at that stage. 
That, that, was, that was amazing. And at that point, I believe, I didn't stay in it. I think we couldn't afford it. Well, at the far end, there's, I think, a salt hotel. I don't know if it still exists. A hotel literally built from blocks of salt. Oh, like the ice hotel. Like the ice amazing. hotel. There is a salt hotel, I believe, in Bolivia, or was. I don't know if it still exists. Oh, well, I, I'd love to chat to you forever. Oh, you live in, uh, that's what I was going to ask you about. You live in Edinburgh, and your wife is Maggie O'Farrell. Yes. Is that right? And in fact, there's a scene in one of her, in This Must Be The Place, I think there's a scene in one of her books, and this was where somebody hits a real low point, because I was with her on that trip, where somebody hits a real low Wait. point, and they go to Bolivia. I think it's just one chapter, and they're, dri and they're driving on a jeep. I'm not sure if she mentions the cellar de uni. I think she might do, but it's... It's set right there. I'm trying to think so what I've read because I've read quite a lot of her books, into, She got it into print before I did. So, yeah, she's, there's a scene in one of her books which is kind of inspired by that extraordinary trip we had through Atacama and Bolivian Altiplano. That's it's quite there. a powerhouse uh, writing family. How does that work when you're sort of sitting together at home writing? Are you sitting at home together writing? Well, we're both, yeah, well, obviously we've got kids, so we're taking to one of us is writing and one of us is looking at after the kids but it doesn't it doesn't feel like a powerhouse family the kids give us very really short they tell us what to do so we're in uh, the fourth and fifth most uh, powerful people in the family they're in, they're in charge really. you've got three then yeah, I'm, I'm good yeah. at counting I could work yeah. that out uh, wonderful well my last question is always about music and actually one of the real standout moments in Are You Experienced is when you're listening to not you obviously it's not you at all when well it might be you actually because this is quite it felt like a memory more than anything because you I don't know or maybe you were just conjuring it up but your character Dave is having this incredible train journey good and bad and is listening to Comfortably Numb yes and there's this great description of the landscape and you can hear the soundtrack as a massive music fan myself I can hear how Comfortably Numb would just be the best soundtrack mm. to listen to on that journey when you're looking out the window and seeing this incredible landscape. First of all, was that an autobiographical moment? And also then I'll ask you about your song that relates to travel. So was it an autobiographical moment? Uh, not exactly. The song choice was chosen for satirical reasons because it just worked comfortably numb. The idea being, in a way, that's what the whole joke of the book is, in a way, that's sort of what he's in pursuit of that he wants to expose himself to things, but he's kind of happiest when he's got... And in a way, that's what music can do when you're travelling. It renders you comfortably numb. I'm going to answer you a whole series of questions backwards yeah, here, it, yeah. actually. I'm a massive music obsessive myself. You know, I play music, I listen to music all the time. One of my favourite things about being a writer is that I can listen to music all the time. I can't really listen to things with lyrics when I'm working, but I listen to jazz and classical. I listen to music almost all, pretty much all the time when I'm working. Sometimes switch it. I can't edit and listen to music for some reason. Mm. So I can't re don't know why I can't rewrite with music on. I think because that blows often it's about getting the rhythm of it right. But I find actually writing a first draft where the real challenge is to stop thinking about the school run and the gospel and this and the other and just to kind of lift yourself out of the everyday world and try and take yourself somewhere else. I find music very useful for that. And all the emails and all the things, distractions and stuff, I find putting music on helps me, especially also electronica, often quite repetitive, simple music. It lifts, that lifts me out of all of the stuff that's going around and it helps me get elsewhere. So I listen to music all the time when I'm writing. And for that reason, I try and avoid music. I almost like need a break for it when I'm travelling. I switch off, actually, despite being... You know, I've got a set of headphones with me today. When I'm out and about in London, I listen to music. I listen to music all the time, except when I'm travelling. And I try and switch off when I'm travelling because I just want to soak up the sounds, especially if I'm in a different culture. And also because I think travel, I guess it's increasingly in this kind of always-on world, travel is your chance. To, we don't daydream anymore, and it's very important. Mm. And I think to just dis I try and disconnect. And again, maybe, like I was saying, try and disconnect myself in a way that it was easy to disconnect yourself when you were young. When I'm away, I try not to listen to music and try and daydream, try and do nothing, try and think nothing. Just let everything simmer down in my head and disconnect. And because all the music I have, I listen like everybody, you listen to the same things so if you're listening to stuff that you've listened to at home it reminds you of home so I think lifting yourself out of and just trying to listen to the sounds around you is good when you're traveling so I try and avoid music when I'm traveling if I, had I didn't to, if I was going to be nasty and forced you to force you to pick a song <laughs> that reminds you of travel a song that reminds you of travel uh, a place a memorable place or time of travel Oh, God, that's Otherwise, a... I'll force that comfortably numb moment on you because that was just a great moment in the book. Uh, again, so ambiently, I was in India. Last time I was in India, I was walking down the street and a 
wedding party went past of I'm not sure the name for the style of drumming. Maybe you know, do like you know Bangra? the name of it? Bangra. It's a bit like, but well, it's just drumming though, and yeah. it was so. It was a it was about ten or twenty Indian drummers, and it was really and it was this really joyful. And it was nighttime, but they were carrying around arc lamps, really bright lamps, and there were people really dressed up. And it was this kind of I don't know how it relates to the sort of wedding traditions of that part of the country. It was in Rajasthan. That's one of those moments, that's what I like about not listening to your own music when you're travelling, when that when it comes up, because there's something about, we have a sort of oversupply of music, it's used as background everywhere, so actually denying it, denying yourself music's right, and then when it appears, and these people just appearing with this amazing, joyful drumming on a random street in Rajasthan one night, and just standing there for as long as I could until they'd gone past, That that's my perfect travel music moment, I think. I'll let you have that because it's a very good moment. So thank you so much for coming on the big travel podcast. Do you think I might be able to persuade Maggie to come on as well? <laughs> I'll ask her when I get home. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. William, I'm so pleased to have had you on the Big Travel Podcast and hopefully we will persuade Maggie to come along too. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please go over to iTunes and give us a nice review. I'll be back next week. This time I promise I will actually be back next week. So see you then. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. <laughs> to be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.